Revelation chapter 2, we're going to be in verses 8 through 11 this morning as we make our way through the seven letters to the churches. Uh, last week, we began our study in the first of the seven, uh, to the first of the seven churches that the Lord uh, specifically uh, wrote to in Revelation chapter 2. And verses 1 through 7, it was to the church of Ephesus. If you remember, they were commended by the Lord for a lot of reasons. He said, you patiently endured. He knew their works, their toil. He knew that they endured through hard times. It's not always easy to be a believer in a pagan foreign land. Amen. And they also uh, did not, they were also commended for the fact that they did not tolerate evil men, especially those who were saying that they were apostles and not. So they were very discerning church. They were church uh, grounded in the truth. They had teachers like uh, Paul and Apollos and and some others, and, and Pastor John, <laughs> Pastor John meaning John the Apostle came. And uh, anyways, they were a really solid church, but if you remember, the Lord said, hey, this is the one thing I need you to work on, one thing I not just need you to work on, one thing you must work on. He says, you've left the love you had at first. He says, if you don't repent, I'm going to come take out your place from among the candlesticks. In other words, he's going to take out the church. The church will die. It's interesting that out of all the churches that, are, that were established, there are no longer those churches around, uh, those original churches, but the church of Smyrna, which we're going to be in today, is one of the, the only churches that basically remains. But they needed to do three things. If you remember, repent, uh, remember, repent, and redo the works that they did at the beginning. I'd encourage you to go over that message and read over those verses in Scripture. Very important, as we can often be very theologically sound, everything down, have doctrine, but have left our first love. Man. But this morning we're moving to the second letter to the churches that Jesus wrote, written by John, the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, which was basically a, a prison colony um, 60 miles east of Ephesus out in, the, out in the ocean there. It was a big rock colony. He was pounding rocks for the Lord basically at 90-something years old. And the Lord gave him a vision and he wrote down what he saw and he is writing these individual letters. He is, dicta- uh, he is receiving these letters, these letters, uh, letters from the Lord to write down to the various churches. And the one this morning is to the church of Smyrna. Now, let me read the letter before we get going. So uh, in verses 8 through 11, it says, And to the church and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. You know, it's interesting, in, out of all the churches written to, only two of them did, weren't, didn't have any correction, and this is one of them. The Lord didn't have any correction to give to this church. He simply gave them encouragement in the situation they were facing. Um, the letter Smyrna, Smyrna to Smyrna begins by saying in verse 8, and to the angel of the church of Smyrna, right, and this is the same answer we're going to find in each of the letters. And we know this from last week, but basically it's the same one from Ephesus to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? Uh, they all begin with this command for John to write to these angels. Now, angel means messenger. We went over this last week. 
And so this was most likely, John's not writing to heavenly angels, but actually to earthly messengers. And most believe that these are, would be some kind of messenger that the Lord had to deliver these messages, these, the books of the copies of Revelation to the various churches. And so he would be able to, John would be able to summon seven elders, seven pastors, it's some kind of leader within the church, and they would summon them to that rock colony. John would have handwritten seven copies of Revelation. He would have given to them to go back through Turkey, which is Asia Minor, and would have handed out these letters as they went on their way to the various churches. And contained within each of the copies of Revelation is a handwritten specific letter to an individual church within there that they had to address as the Lord Jesus is among them. This is what he sees. This is what he's evaluating. This is what he knows. And so John is, uh, is there and he is writing this down. He's going to hand it to these angels, so to speak, these messengers. Uh, now, to give you a little background on the church of Smyrna, and it's a weird name and I keep saying it, and it's never going to be right, but Smyrna. <clears throat> uh, it was in modern-day Turkey. Actually, the city that's there now is called Izmir. Um, all these churches he's writing to are modern-day Turkey. Um, and there's an image, uh, if we have it up there. Yes, it's a little bit big. That's good. I was hoping so. But if you look there on the bottom left dot, that's Patmos. That's where Paul is, uh, Paul, John is writing from. And then if you look up on the coast, one or two dots, Smyrna's right there. And it's kind of in a, in a little, uh, basically, it's, it's, it's on the Aegean Sea. And it's in a little harbor there. It's in a, uh, what is it called? A gulf, Yeah. Uh, and it was called the most beautiful city in Asia, basically, by historians. It was the most beautiful city in Asia. That is in Asia Minor. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about Asia here. It had an excellent harbor. It was superior to Ephesus. They were able to, like, block it off so militarily they could protect, protect themselves. Now, Ephesus, when earthquakes happened, basically a, a silt came into the harbor, and they had, a, they had problems with stuff. But this, this didn't happen here. So they had a really awesome trade route there. And obviously, with the Romans in charge, there was uh, excellent trade going on. It was a really well-designed city. Um, Alexander the Great, so way before this letter, several hundred years, 300 years before, he rebuilt the city after it was destroyed, and he planned it out with excellence. There were wide roads leading everywhere. There were uh, public buildings everywhere. There was, uh, there was groves of trees kind of on the outskirts of the city. And so it was a well-designed, well-planned city. And it basically comes up from the harbor and slowly makes itself up, up a hill. And so there's just this beautiful city. And that, was, that, that hill is called the Pagos. And there, were mo- there was a most famous street called the Street of Gold that curved all around the Pagos. It kind of went up. You can imagine that. Uh, on the harbor end, um, there was the Temple of Cybele, Cy- and at the top of the hill, there was a temple of Zeus. And so Cybele, you'd come into the harbor, there'd be at this big, beautiful temple to this uh, foreign god, Cybele. And you'd make your way up and, to the temple of Zeus, which would be the pinnacle there. Uh, but along the way, there were all these other temples uh, to Apollo, to Asclepius uh, and uh, Aphrodite, and all these other temples in between. And so there were all these places of worship scattered throughout the city. So Smyrna was beautiful. It was a really prosperous city. There was trade routes they were connected to. It was a really lucrative, wealthy city. It was beautiful. Uh, Smyrna was also noted as a center of medicine and, and uh, science, and so they were 
cutting edge, probably on bleeding people. Who knows what in the world was going on there? But uh, it, was, it was obviously they were doing some researching at the time, and, and it was known for that. And under the Roman Empire, it had the privilege of being a self-governed city. And so that was, that's kind of a benefit. And it was actually called the first city of Asia. Uh, and it was kind of like an award given. Uh, all the different cities there, Ephesus, Pergamos, and, 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 uh, and Smyrna, they all kind of like competed for this title of, you know, you know nicest city in the West or whatever it was. But as it was called, this, the first city of Asia. And they won. And in this, this really is important because it speaks to their kind of Roman nationalism that was in this city. It was a very pro-Roman city. Now, not all, conquered, all, all cities that were conquered by Rome were very pro-Roman, but this was a very pro-Roman city. And this is important to note because uh, it was distinct, more, distinctly so more than other uh, cities in Asia Minor, so much so that what had begun as political zeal, and this is important, political zeal for Rome in that city, now at the time of John's writing, when he is writing, had become a place where emperor worship was zealously practiced. About 70 years before this letter was written, uh, in the year 23 AD, Rome, Rome granted Smyrna. So Smyrna is asking Rome, okay, can we build a temple in our city so we can worship your emperors? And like Rome's like, well, maybe. <laughs> no, so they said, yeah, and Tiberius said, yeah, go ahead and do that, and you'll, it, we'll dedicate it to Augustus and, and all this type of stuff. And so there was actually a temple there for the worship of a Roman Caesar. And so it got to the point in the Roman Empire where worship of Caesar became a sign of political loyalty. Very interesting. Uh, political loyalty, and to show their support every year, citizens would be required eventually under the penalty of death. Actually, by the time uh, the church in Smyrna, he's writing to the church in Smyrna, it had already been enacted a few years before that it was under the penalty of death that every year uh, Roman citizens throughout the Roman Empire must come and offer a pinch of, of incense to, to Caesar and say that Caesar is Lord. Now, the Romans didn't care if you went, then went back and worshipped Zeus and all these other places. They didn't care about that. They wanted, they wanted political uh, allegiance to Caesar. And so some cities were more serious about this than others, as you can imagine, right? And, and Smyrna was very serious about this. They took it seriously. They would enact capital punishment on those who rejected to do this under Emperor Domitian, obviously, he's the one who actually made it a capital offense just a few years before this was written. And so what you had was a, it was a very beautiful city in a, ver a very lucrative place with trading routes and all this opportunity that surrounded it, strewn with all these beautiful buildings and pagan worship and all this type of stuff, just the, the height of a Roman province, so to speak, where you had very... Uh, zealous citizens who were aligned with Rome, who would kill anyone who didn't hold to that, uh, not to mention everybody was totally devoted to all their gods. It was just a pagan, yeah, it's the pagan utopia, basically. And you have a church that's in the middle of this. This is where Jesus is writing to a church in the midst of, of this situation. And so you can begin to imagine what it was like being a believer in a city 
like this. It was an uphill battle. I find it interesting that the name Smyrna is the same word for myrrh. That's, that's the same connection. Remember at Christmas we went over the significance of those different types of offerings that were given to Jesus at his birth, and they signified different things. Myrrh kind of more signifying his death. Again, as we went over at Christmas, myrrh was a resin taken from a tree that had a really fragrant scent. It was used in perfumes. Um, it was used in perfumes, but in order for that scent to really, uh, really be expunged, what they would do is they'd take that hardened resin and they'd crush it and then they reconstitute it with liquid or whatever, become perfume, but they'd crush it. And it was in the crushing of the myrrh that the fragrance really came out. Myrrh was connected in the Jews' uh, burial rituals where they would take the bodies and they would put myrrh in there to help with the stink and all that kind of stuff as people were decomposing, like what Nicodemus did with Jesus in John 19. And it's quite fitting here, obviously, you see the parallel where the church in Smyrna that Jesus is writing to was a persecuted church. They would be crushed. They already had been crushed. They had already been under the persecution of the citizens of Smyrna, but they were about to face a greater persecution. And this is why the Lord lets this persecuted church know, he reminds them, recalling at the beginning of the letter an aspect of who he is. Jesus lays out a bunch, has a, John has an image of Christ, and he's, he's pulling something about the image of who he is to each of these churches that pertains to something that he wants to tell them. And to the church of Smyrna, he says to them in verse 8, this is who's speaking to you, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. He's writing to them, and says, I'm writing to you, and this is the first thing. Imagine if the Lord's writing to us, and he says, hey, listen, I'm writing to you. Who's writing to you? The first and the last who died and came to life. And they're sitting here reading this. They've been persecuted. Some of them have already died. The letter begins with those words, the first and the last. This is very important, church. If you're taking notes, a few key verses you'll want to write down concerning who the first and the last is. Isaiah 41.4 is a very important uh, verse where the prophet Isaiah wrote, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. Who calls the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last. I am He. The name there for the Lord is Jehovah, His personal name. It is Jehovah. God, I am the first and the last. There's no mystery about it. The first and the last is Jehovah God. And so according to Isaiah 41.4, God is the first and the last. Next, regarding that, Isaiah, another verse of Isaiah. These will all be at Isaiah. Isaiah 43.10, which says, You are my witnesses. Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he before me, there was no God formed, nor shall there be one after me. And again, there's no one before me. There's no one after me. Who is he? He's the first. He's the last. He's the alpha. He's the omega. He's the beginning. He's the end. Who's this speaking of? This is God. And that's another way of saying he's eternal. In the last verse, Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, 
I am the first and the last. Just to be clear, beside me there is no what? There is no God. This is God speaking. I am the first and the last. There is no God. So who is the first and the last church? It is God. Now who's speaking to Smyrna here in verse 8? The words of the first and the last. Who what? What did he do? Oh, he died and came to life. Real quickly, when did God die? I like to ask Jehovah's Witnesses this. When did God die? It's a Walter Martin question. Oh, who do we know that died and rose again? Yeah, Jesus Christ. The Son of God, God the Son. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. The reason that Jesus is identifying himself to this church as the first and the last who died and came back to life is to remind them of the one who went before them in death and who had conquered death, who rose again because they would soon be crushed. They would soon lose their lives. And Jesus purely wants them to remember what you're going through, I went through already. And I've had victory over death. Amen. That as they were going through this, they would remember the Lord's suffering. They would remember what he went through at the hands of sinners as, as he followed his father. And they would remember that death could not hold him down. And his promise to them, as we'll see, is be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And so after Jesus introduces himself, he begins, like he did with Ephesus, by letting them know what he knows. And again, this word isn't, hey, I've heard. This is, I intimately know. I know about my church. I know. And what does the Lord say here in verse 9? I know your what? Your tribulation and your poverty but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Jesus doesn't mince words. Jesus says there's two things I know there that we focus on at first. The first is your tribulation and your uh, poverty. Your tribulation and your poverty. Tribulation means pressure or crushing. The idea is the picture of grapes being crushed. That's one idea, is the grapes that were crushed. That's the idea, word that was used for tribulation. The other idea of tribulation uh, that was used in literature and things is the idea of trying to get a confession out of a criminal. And what they would do is they would take the criminal, they'd put him on the ground, someone would hold him to the ground or tie him to the ground, whatever they were tied him to. They're laying flat and they would put a giant rock on their chest. And so... It would just be this constant huge weight. And so obviously, uh, you know, when the weight's pushing down on you, it's easy to breathe in, but it's hard to breathe out, right? Or it's easy to breathe out, but it's hard to breathe in, right? And so what would happen is they would just be under this constant weight until they could not do it anymore. So they would try to get a confession. That's the idea of this crushing weight, this persecution, 
And that's what it was like to be a believer in Smyrna. It was just under this constant crushing weight, this tribulation. They were a church that was being hard-pressed. And as I already mentioned, they were in a city that demanded emperor worship. And believers in Smyrna were being killed because they would not participate, even though they were under that crushing oppression. They would not give in. Not only in the emperor worship, but in everything else, in all the pagan worship that was in Smyrna. They would not give in. They followed the Lord Jesus. And they were a church, because of that, they were in poverty. Now, there's two, there's a couple different words, actually, for poverty. One is like, hey, you, you just have your basic needs, but nothing else. That's not this word. This word is abject poverty. They can't even get their basic needs met. They were struggling day after day to get their basic needs met. And no doubt this was because they remained devoted to the Lord in a culture that was more willing to let up on them. They would go, hey, yeah, come back in and everything's good as long as you just recant or just do the pinch. Just say it. That's all you got to do. Put the thing, you know, just take the little offering to Caesar. Just, just do that and say Caesar's Lord and go about your life. Everything's good. Just give in, which is a lie. They were in that kind of culture, but they would not. But in particular, uh, the Lord was pointing out the persecution they were having by Jews. And that was one of the problems they had. If you read about Paul's uh, journeys and acts, you find out that every city he went into, he had Jews who believed, but he would, he would receive tremendous opposition from the Jews, which is ironic because they are the people with all the scriptures in the background. They're the ones who should know, but they didn't. And they become one of the most zealous persecutors of the church. In particular, the Lord points out that they were slandered by those who say they were Jews and are not, but are actually of the synagogue of Satan. Jesus knew that they were being slandered by Jews, but the Lord says that they are not Jews. They're not real Jews. And, you know, and Paul still had a heart for these Jews if we look at his journey, and we see that actually in, in Romans 9 when Paul starts to, to talk about this, actually particularly in Rome, Romans 9 starting in verse 6 about Jews who were not really Jews. Uh, he starts out by saying, man, I wish I could be accursed for them. I love them so much. I wish I could die and I could go to hell and that they would take my place. That's how much he longed for his people. He saw like all the things lined up. They should know. They have the scriptures. They have all the signs. They have the covenants. Man, they have this rich history. They should all know it. They should have it. They should be the people of God. What? I just wish this would happen. And that was his heart. And Paul says there, in verse 6, he goes, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as if God messed up. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. Well, this is interesting. Not all who are Israel are truly Israel. Not all Jews are truly Jews as God intended. And not all children of Abraham are, are I'm sorry, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, just because simply they're born of Jewish descent. But through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. In other words, there would be a specific people that were brought about through Isaac. And, and people go, okay, well, I'm a descendant of Isaac. And that's not what he's talking about. That's not what that meant. They were thinking physical. The Lord was saying, this is a spiritual matter. And this was the problem with the Jews. And in verse 8, he says, this means that 
It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise, of the promise, who are counted as offspring. Paul understood that there would be Jews, natural Jews, that would come out from there. But it wasn't those Jews who were truly Jews, so to speak. They weren't truly God's people. See, they kept on saying, I have a spiritual heritage, therefore I'm right with God. I, have a, I mean, I have a physical heritage, therefore I'm right with God. I'm an American, therefore I'm a Christian. Just like going to, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, who sings the song? What's the song, Christine? Uh, yeah, Keith Green. Just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Some other have been said, uh, you know, living in your garage doesn't make you a car. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Does that make sense? People can say they're Christians. Oh, I'm Christian. Oh, are you really? What's his point? is that a true Jew is one who is born again by trusting in their Messiah who came through Isaac, the child of promise. That through Isaac, all the nations would be blessed. Not saying that through the Jews, all the nations would be blessed. Through the seed, through Jesus Christ who would come, all the nations would be blessed, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It's those who believe upon Christ as their Messiah that are truly Jews, so to speak. That was Paul's point. And what we see here is at the time of the writing of this letter, there were Jews scattered all around Gentile lands. We see that in Hebrews is writing to them. James is writing to them. We see all these letters written to the dispersion of the Jews. And they claim to be of the synagogue of God. These ones in Smyrna claim to be of the synagogue of God. Yeah, we're God's chosen people. They claimed to be of the Son of God, but they denied Jesus Christ. They denied their Messiah. And they persecuted his church, showing themselves actually to be under the power and the influence of Satan. Ooh. And it was these Christ-rejecting Jews that were making, many people believe, as you look through the church history, that they were making accusations against the uh, Jews against these Roman authorities, uh, to the Roman authorities. And there was a persecution that happened. And as a result of that persecution, the church was struggling just for their basic needs in a city that was overflowing with resources. And the Lord says to his church, you're in poverty, but I want you to know something. You are what? You are rich. It tells you the Lord has a different definition of riches than we do, doesn't it? Doesn't he? It's important. We see the Lord in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 speak to those who would be persecuted, to the rich, to those who would have their riches taken away, who would be, well, let me just read it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 10, 11. He says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For whose is the kingdom of God? For theirs is the kingdom of God. You have a whole kingdom. It's yours. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, who slander you. Rejoice and be glad for your reward. Your reward, your reward is great. Where? In heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Who persecuted the prophets? The Jews who weren't really Jews. 
And as the church suffered at the hands of the persecutors, the Lord lets them know of their riches. You have riches that cannot be taken away from you. They will never be taken away from you. Peter talks about this. Ephesians talks about this. You can just read about the riches that we have in Christ Jesus that are given to us in him can't be taken away. They're in his hand. They're waiting for us. It is our inheritance in him. And these riches are spiritual. They aren't earthly. They can't rust. They can't be stolen. They can't, moths can't get them. They can't imagine that. These are for us as believers. That is for them as believers. Jesus says, you are rich in your persecution. And then in verse 10, the Lord tells them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. They had gone through persecution, but they hadn't seen the full force of the persecution that was coming. It was coming upon Smyrna in a fury. The Lord would allow the devil to throw some of them in prison. And the purpose for this was that they would be what? Tested. God allows testing in his church. He allows us to go through persecution and hard times. Why would the Lord do that? We know that tests prove they prove out and refine what is really there, doesn't, don't they? That's what happens. Has this last year shown you a lot about who you are, what your priorities are, what they aren't, what they should be? Has the Lord had a chance to test us a little bit? I've been tested. But that's what tests do. They really prove out what's there. It separates the fluff from the substance. James speaks to this. Peter speaks to this. James says in chapter 1 where he begins, says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why in the world are you supposed to count it all joy? Why? For you know the purpose of the testing. For you know what the testing of your faith produces. It produces steadfastness. Trials, man, they... They shapen us up. They focus us on what's important. They, they get us to be consistent. They show the inconsistencies and drive us to the Lord, in the Lord. And then he says, let steadfast now have its full effect. Let it happen. Let the trial produce in you what it's supposed to produce, what God is trying to do. Stop kicking against it and trying to get comfort. He's trying to build character. steadfastness, and steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, meaning complete. That's perfect and complete. The idea is you're mature, lacking nothing. And then again, verse 12, and then he goes on and says, oh, if you do lack something, pray. And he goes on to all that stuff. But later on, he concludes the idea in verse 12. He says, but blessed is the man who remains, what? Steadfast under trial, who perseveres under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will, what? Receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who what? Love him. Who are those who love him? Who continue steadfastly under trial, who continue to follow him, who obey him. Peter says much the same in 1 Peter 1, 6-7. Pastor Marcus read this earlier. He says, in this you rejoice, though for now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, the 31 flavors of trials, right? So that the testing, uh, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, the church in Smyrna would be allowed to go through testing 
It says 10 days. I don't know if it's like 10 literal days, but the idea is 10 is the number of testing in the Bible. There's going to be a season with the beginning and the end where you are going to be tested. You are going to be persecuted. You are going to be refined. Know that I'm allowing this to happen. And at the end of it, you're going to be, it's going to produce something in you through this perseverance. It'll be, your, your faith will be proven through this trial. It'll be proven to you And it will show at the end that you're actually indeed in the faith. You are saved. You are in Christ Jesus. Church, believers believe. That's what we do. Believe is not like a one-time belief. It is an ongoing belief. That's what believers do. We believe. And so the Lord tells them in verse 10, be faithful Unto what? Unto death. Church, your trial is over when you die. Your testing is done when you're dead. Physical body gives out. The Lord shouts. It says, come up here when you get the idea. I was going to go into all the idioms, but... When we're physically done, our trial is over. Be faithful unto death. And I will what? I'll give you the crown of life. I'll give you the crown of life. Though you are going to be crushed, there will be a beautiful aroma that will come out of your life before the Lord. A persecuted church has something beautiful before the Lord that's going on in it. As it's getting crushed, all the other things that are important, you know, the seemingly important, they get pushed to the side, and the Lord becomes central. He becomes our hope. We're, you know, a church that come, becomes in poverty or is just, is just lost. They just need Jesus every single day. There's a beautiful aroma that comes out of this persecution. And their forerunner in suffering, in death, and resurrection, the first and the last, Jesus Christ, who died and is alive, promised to give them the crown of life to those who were faithful unto death. The crown of life is not a literal crown. It is an idiom for eternal life. And he says this several different ways. But the picture being painted of this crown is like that of the Olympic Games. They would receive a wreath. It was the victor's crown. That's what a a Stephanos, a a victor's crown. At the end of a competition, the one who overcame, the one who had victory, they were given a reward. Jesus says, your reward, the end of your faith, is the salvation of your souls. You will be saved. What does that mean? When you believed in Christ, you're saved. You are being saved. And on that day, you will be saved. Salvation, the big picture. You will receive eternal life. Believers keep believing until their faith becomes sight. And the church at Smyrna would be tested. One of the most famous martyrs of the church in Smyrna was their pastor and bishop. His name was Polycarp. How would you like a name called Polycarp? Mini fish. No, that's not it. Polycarp. He was burned alive at the stake in the middle of the first century, not much further after they received this letter. They're receiving this letter at the end of the first century. It would be within the next 50 or 60 years, somewhere around there, that Polycarp would be 86, and he, and he would be 86. He would die at the stake. He'd be burned alive. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. We have some of, I think, 
his writings in early church stuff or reference to him. If you get a chance, read the early church writings of that account. Be faithful until death. But Polycarp's crime was that he wouldn't declare that Caesar was Lord. There's a lot more there. But the general thing is he would not recant his faith in Jesus. And they, they, they brought him, I'm going to make a very simplified thing of it. They brought him into the arena. They'd already tried to tell him to change, but they brought him into the arena where he was. And they said, listen, if you don't recant, we're going to force beasts on you, basically. We'll let the lions go. And, and basically that was unlawful because the lions already did their, had their fun. And so they said, well, if you, and he said, no, I'm not going to recant. And he says, well, we're, we're going to burn you alive with fire. Uh, what's going to happen? They threaten him. They're going to be, you know, burned alive with fire. And pa- I love what Polycarp said to them. He says, you threaten me with fire that burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring forth what you will. And they did. And it was, the, and it was recorded that they did it with haste, and the Jews were a major part of grabbing all the sticks and bringing them in. Then all the people, they gathered their sticks, the synagogue of Satan, and they burned him alive. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, the Lord said. Verse 11, we're almost done. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this isn't just for the local church. Everybody else is reading this letter. You've got to hear, they're reading each other's mail. He's saying, church, not only the seven churches then, churches throughout the age, listen to what the Spirit is saying to his church, to us. What can we glean? What is God saying to us this morning? Listen to what the Spirit is saying. And here's the promise given to them. To the one who conquers, guess what? You will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes, that is the one who perseveres in faith through it all. The one who keeps believing no matter what comes because believers believes to them they'll not be hurt by the second death. Now, that should grab your attention. How many of you are going, okay, great. There's a second death? I only thought there was one. Yeah. We're all concerned about the first one, which is, ushers you into the second death. Very important. We've been so worried lately about that first death, we, we don't realize the end of the second death. Turn quick with me, quickly with me. We're finishing here, Revelation 21. Flip over there for the text regarding the second death. Revelation 21, the key verses are basically 14 and 15, but I'll read 11 through 15. To give you some context real quickly in Revelation, this is passages about the great white throne judgment, verses 11 through 15. It takes place at the end of this world. Okay, that's just like the end of this world. So eschatologically, what I hold to, is we are in the church age right now. Christ died. We're in the church age. We are waiting a seven-year tribulation. At midpoint, there'll be a great tribulation. On the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist will come on the scene. The Jews will come back into focus. And at the end of that seven-year period, the Lord Jesus will return on the earth while he will set up a thousand-year kingdom and rule and reign, and we will rule with him for a thousand years. At the end of that time, Satan is released. The Lord basically, uh, at the end of that time, calls it quits. And the whole earth is just undone. And this is what Peter talks about uh, in his writings. But that's where we are here, at the end of everything. 
It says, then I saw the great, in verse 11 of Revelation 21, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, the earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were open. Peter, as I said, speaks of this in 2 Peter 3.10, where he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth uh, in and, and sorry, and the earth and the works uh, that are done in it, uh, on it will be exposed. And that's what's described here. All, a day when all the works that people have done are exposed. They're brought before God. The books were opened. And then another book was opened, it says, in verse 12, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, just in case you were wondering if people could hide in the sea. No, there's no place. It's just an idiom. It's the saying, there's no place that anybody could hide who has ever existed. Sea gave up the dead who were in it. Well, what about death and hell? Gave up the de- death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. In other words, all death, people in hell, everybody was brought before the throne of God, and they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Everyone gets judged by what they have done in this life. We are not saved by what they've done. It proves who you are. Got to make that clarity. Good trees bear good fruit. Bad trees bear bad fruit. The Lord is the judge of it all. Christians, those who are saved, we bear good fruit. There's a lot there. But it's all recorded, and no one's able to hide. There'll be a resurrection of the just and the unjust, and all will stand before God to give an account. And this is where we want to focus about the second death. And I didn't lay out all the theology there. Yes, Christians don't face judgment because Christ took the judgment for us. There's a lot there. But the de- then death, verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Verse 15 brings clarity. And if anyone's name was not written, found written in the book of life, he was what? Thrown into the lake of fire. The book of life consists of those who have put their faith in Christ. Those are believers for all time. Anyone whose name is not in the book of life, anyone whose name is not in the book of life, those are unbelievers. They are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. You see, hell is just a holding tank. The lake of fire is the pen, so to speak. People die and they immediately go to a holding tank. You don't know the Lord and they are in hell. But then hell is emptied out before God on judgment day and they are judged according to what they have done and then they are sent away into everlasting darkness. This is what Jesus is talking about so many times. If you only knew what this was, this is why he described it in such imagery. Gnashing of teeth and worms and the fire never dies and yet it's complete darkness. He's using all these terms to say, you don't want to go there. You want your name written in the book of life and I am life. Come to me and I will freely give it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe upon me would not perish, would not go there. 
Repent, turn, come to me, and you will have everlasting life. I freely give it. Come. That's God's cry. You see, hell is just a holding take for judgment. Death and hell are thrown in the lake of the fire. And this is what Polycarp knew. He knew it on that day. He says, this fire is going to burn for a minute. I'm going to be gone, maybe an hour. So I suffer two hours, whatever it is. But there's a fire coming. I would never deny the Lord. I'm, he's everything. This life is not worth living without him. He says other things, like he's been faithful to me. Why would I be unfaithful to him now? It's 86 years I've lived. He's been faithful to me. Never gone against me. Ever done anything against me. He's always been for me. Why would I abandon him now? I'm paraphrasing. Jesus speaking of this to his disciples in Matthew 10, 28 said to them, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And that I, the idea of destruction is not, it's being destructive, it's continual. Jesus said to his church in Smyrna, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The one who overcomes by believing me will not be hurt by the second death. You who believe in Christ Jesus will not be hurt by the second death. Amen. And so whatever suffering may come our way as a church, and I think it's coming, he's faithful. This last year has been a precursor to a lot. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you know, there is the emphasis on us staying with the Lord, you know. I don't know how many about you, but I don't know. Would you, would, you ha- would you hold up under such persecution? I don't trust myself. And I don't want to make the emphasis on, you know, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. But that's what he's saying. Jesus is saying, telling them, hold on, right? But there's another side of this. In Jude 21, he does say, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourself in the faith. But just a few verses later, in verses 24 and 25 of Jude, there's only one chapter, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his his glory with great joy. On the one hand, he says, keep yourself. On the other hand, you find out who's keeping you. There's this tension in Scripture. That's what faith is. We believe, but it's God who's holding us. That beautiful tension. Jesus says, you're only going to die once. You don't need to worry about the judgment. Stay faithful. We find out that he's keeping us faithful. Amen. And again, just closing, I know it's a little long, but this is important. I believe it's quite possible in the near future that the church in America is going to experience greater persecution as the rest of the world is well acquainted with. While it's, you know, again, it's nothing new to our brothers and sisters for a long time now. Uh, what we've seen in the, in the COVID response in shuttering churches for months at a time under the penalty of fines and legal fees and so forth has been pretty staggering to me. I understand the reasons behind it. But it was a stark realization that the liberties that this nation was founded upon and that we all thought we had could be thrown out at a moment's notice for whatever reason, justified or unjustified. You know, and, I, and I'm, you know, with 
whatever administration comes, but it seems like, you know, chosen by, as we look at the Biden administration, which we need to pray for and, and, and just ask God's mercy for. It's not like the last administration was great, but this is op- there's, there's some openly defiant things going on in, in this administration that are flat out godless as well. But I don't think, I don't see policies getting more convenient for the church. I don't see things getting easier for the church. I see um, the path forward in the church is going to become harder. I think for Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches, not for those who are just willing to give their pinch of offering to Caesar and say Caesar is Lord and go along their way, but the ones who hold fast to the Lord and won't give up on the things that Jesus Christ died to save us from, we're not going to rejoice and let happen and exalt him. But I expect that in the next few years, we're going to see, feel the screws put to us more and more as bolder and bolder legislation is going to come out for us. It's going to be passed, and, and I think it's going to be unprecedented in many ways for, for, for Americans, where we're going to have to choose between burning the incense to Caesar and declaring that Jesus is Lord and bear the consequences more and more. You know, if this past year was any indicator, I don't see it getting any easier for us. This is why it's important that we choose today to follow the Lord Jesus. You know, uh, this is why we must understand that what we render to, we have to understand what we are to render to Caesar and what is God's. Because things, there are things that are God's that are not Caesar's. Like our worship. Like the word, like evangelism, like fellowship, like gathering together as Jesus commands us to do, all these things. They're not Caesar's, they're God's. And I'm willing to suffer, I'm willing to stand with you, to be with you no matter what. Of course we are with one another in love and we respect one another and all those things. That that goes with that saying. But a church can't be apart from one another for a year at a time because of, of, of an order. We have higher orders. And what we know from testing in Scripture is that as believers, we're going to be better for it. We're going to be better for it. We become more refined in our love for one another, uh, more refined in our love for the Lord, more heartfelt in our worship, more of a desire to spend time with another, one, one another more willing to, to see each other in their sufferings and to reach out and help one another. Refining does a beautiful thing to the church. The church gets stronger in persecution, not work, not weaker. But right now, we don't we don't just have to pray for the persecuted church in distant countries, you know. And I want to, and we will as we close, but we can also pray for churches in North America that are facing things. Just in this last year, you know, pastors and churches that are facing prison time and all this stuff just for holding services. Calvary Chapel, San Jose, pastors were threatened with jail time, but recently the city relaxed because they're just going to go after the $1 million fine. Grace Community Church, John MacArthur's church, ongoing legal battle with the city of Los Angeles for having in-person services for COVID-19. I know there's a lot of different opinions about this. They're just having church. The Ontario, this is Canada, Superior Court of Justice in Canada, find Trinity Bible Church 
uh, Trinity Bible Chapel, a Canadian church, $83,000 for holding a physical service on a Sunday, violating the restrictions on COVID-19. I love what the pastor says. He says, we'll pay the $83,000 for having church on January 24. I could say it was the most extravagant priced service I, I've ever had, but that would not be factual. Every service I've held has cost Christ his very own blood, which is worth infinitely more than any dollar amount, he said. I think just people trying to grapple with everything that's going on. But my point isn't a COVID-19 persecution. That's not it. Neither here nor there on that. But my point is, is that the point of attack that is coming on the church, churches are going to be, will be in some violation of the law that we cannot comply with. And will be brought to the point of poverty through the courts. That's what's coming. That's the first wave. It's not going to be all out beating people up. It's going to be saying, you must have gay weddings. You must have, you must do all these types of things that are totally anti-Christ, whatever they might be. And just as we are compelled to do something for the good of the greater good this past year, that's just a mechanism where there's going to be an emboldening in this, in this country that's going to come as evil has become more exponential. Where the church is just, who cares what the church thinks? Who cares about whatever liberties you had and all that kind of stuff? This is where we're going. And you've got to comply or, or else you will face X, Y, Z. You can't preach this. You can preach this. Listen, we're committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and we'll continue to worship him. We're not going to be mean about anything. We'll suffer accordingly. We're going to be faithful to the Word of God. We're going to be faithful to the God of the Word. So, it could only get worse from here, church. It could be great. I don't know, but that's my, that's my feel. So, let's choose this day to follow the Lord. Amen? And let's pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world who have it way worse than, oh, no, you've got to wear a mask. Pray for our brothers and sisters in China who now have facial recognition in a lot of their churches. They're following them. They're finding out what they're doing. Pray for our brothers and sisters in China. And by the way, it's a thriving church, underground church. They're praying for us because we think we're rich, but we're actually poor. Let's pray for the Lord's church in Nigeria under persecution from Muslim extremists. Let's pray for believers in Saudi Arabia where conversion to Christianity is punishable by death. Let's pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea where we don't even know what's going on, but it's bad. And I would challenge us not just to pray, Lord, stop the persecution, but let's pray what Jesus asked. Lord, you promised that in this life we would have tribulation. The fear not I have overcome the world, you said. Lord, may these churches persevere unto death and receive all the rewards you have for them. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Mm -hmm. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that we pray. Amen.